Amen. Go ahead and uh, turn to your neighbor. We, you know, we usually don't do this, but turn to your neighbor and uh, tell him John's got some good stuff. Uh, turn to your other neighbor, your second choice, and tell him God's got some good stuff. Thank you, John, for being here and, and leading us. Uh, I'm Pastor Josh. If it is your uh, first time with us, we're, I'm glad you're here, and it is, it is good to see you. Um, and uh, I, I really, honestly, um, I don't know if I've ever told you this, too, before, but I'll, I'm always humbled just by the ability to, I, I, not by the ability, but by your willingness to allow me to share a word uh, with you all. And uh, I, I appreciate that, and, and I'm, I'm humbled by it, um, to get to stand up here and, and get to teach and, and to preach and uh, to share um, what I believe God has laid on my heart and, and what I believe is, is important for us as followers of Jesus. Um, this series that we're in is a, a series called You Ask For It, um, and again, something that's extremely humbling that... Uh, I would put a survey out, and you all would say, hey, this, Josh, this is, this, is, this is what I want you to help me with, because um, I think it's crazy that anybody would want any help from me. Um, uh, and, but in reality, hopefully what I, what I share with you isn't really from me, but it, it is, is from the Lord. And if there's anything not from me, just get rid of it. If, if you don't think what I have to say is what the scriptures teach us and what God would have us to do or who God would have us to be or to become, uh, leave it behind. I'm cool with that. Uh, and uh, so we're starting this series, or continuing this series, but really we're starting almost a series within the series, because two weeks ago is when I started it, um, because I'm going to speak on basically kind of encompassing kind of two uh, broad words that you all asked me to, kind of, to, to, to tackle, and they're anxiety and stress. And I want to sit here for basically kind of four weeks, because I've taken this survey a number of times, probably five times throughout the years, in ministry were asked, what do you want me to talk about? What do you want me to address? And anxiety and stress is always at the top. And obviously, since I've been doing this for taking this survey for over five years, I mean, this is like before COVID. This is, this is before a, a lot, when we think that a lot of kind of the social and cultural uh, expectations and, and uh, events had taken that's caused us a lot of anxiety and stress have taken place. So this is something that has, we have been dealing with just kind of culturally in and outside of the church for, for really a, a, a long time. Um, we've been wrestling with these things. And, you know, I, I talk about the mental health crises and all these things that we are going through uh, a, a decent amount. And usually what happens is that, you know, I'm not the only one addressing these things. Pastors all around the country are addressing these things. And usually they're addressed uh, by teaching ways of prayer and meditation um, and then almost kind of a, a cognitive behavioral therapeutic um, way of, of, of dealing with anxiety and stress. And by the way, I am for all of that. That's, good, that's all good stuff. We need to learn how to pray. We need to learn how to meditate. And it's, it's why one of the reasons we come into this room, it's one of the reasons that we had 21 days of prayer and fasting. And, and I think all of those things are, are really good. But I wanted to address this kind of in a, in a different way as I've been kind of thinking about uh, um, things and, and kind of where God has been leading me and trying really to think about like what what kind of underlies all of our anxiety and stress and I'm definitely not going to cover everything in these in this series but 
I, I believe that we really, we're just, we're living our lives in ways that contribute to us having an anxious heart. Like we're living our lives in ways that kind of stress us out. And there's cultural and social norms that, that we kind of fall, like get into, fall into, grab ourselves that, that are, are making us just we're, just, not, we're just not living as we could be or as we should be. And so I'm going to address it basically in four, four ways over the next four weeks. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to tell you the first one uh, this morning. The first is that I think, I think we kind of bought into to secularism, in the, in the church even. Uh, the second is materialism. Uh, the third is individualism, or maybe even isolationism, and, and the fifth is protectionism. So I have these four isms that we're going to address over the next four weeks, and hopefully God will do something in our lives and, and maybe get us thinking about some way, things differently than we currently do. And so let's jump into this, to, to jumping into this first one, which is secularism. I actually want to go back to the book of Judges, back to the book of Judges. And Judges, uh, the book of Judges ends with this really incredible statement. It ends with this verse, and it's talking about basically everything that happened in the book in this way. So this is Judges 21, 25. It's the last book of the, it's the last verse of the book, and the writer is intentionally trying to get us to sit on this verse. Here it is. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, you, I feel like as modern people, we might read this and go like, hey, that's a good thing. No king. Everybody can do whatever they want. But this is, this is not a celebration here of the people of Israel. It's actually an indictment on them. It's an indictment on the way they had been living, on the things that they had been doing. And if you've ever read Judges, this is why I encourage you to, to read your Bibles, because uh, if you've ever read Judges, I encourage you just so you, kind of, you can follow me a little bit here and you can think back on some of these things. But, but Judges is, is like a roller coaster. That's how I would describe it. And, and so in the book of Judges, they're, they're entering into the promised land. Like they finally have gotten there. Josh, that's how Joshua ends. Joshua ends and they've, they've ushered themselves out of, God has ushered them out of Egypt into the promised land. Everybody basically is committed to the Lord at the end of Joshua, or at least they make the commitment at the end of Joshua. They say, as, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And they, they begin to, to spread out throughout the, uh, through, through, throughout the land that, that God had promised them, where they're going to see, receive bre- like blessings, and they're going to thrive there, and God is going to be with them. And they're, they're building like their, their two-car garage with three-and-a-half bedrooms. Like this is, this is what they're looking forward to. They're having their families. All, they're looking forward to all of that. That's what's, that's what's happening as you get into to Judges. But what really they end up kind of getting on what would be kind of a roller coaster. They, they come into land, and you think you're going to thrive. You think it's going to be all right. And then what happens is basically like invaders move in, or they start taking advantage of one another. And so their, li- so their lives, like they take these downward spirals, like one after the other. And, and the reason the book is called the book of Judges is because somebody kind of comes into the scene and they're, they're kind of a judge over the people. And what they do is they try to lead the people into revival and to, to, to obey God and to honor him and to follow him. And so the judge kind of gets everybody together and says, here's what we're going to do. They rally the people. We're going to obey God. God is going to help us kind of fight back everybody and everything's going to be okay. And so they go from this low point 
to this high point, and then everything seems to be going all right, and they're doing okay. Well, they decide to do everything right in their own eyes again, and then they, they plummet again. And a judge shows up, goes like this, and then they plummet again. And so it's this, it's this roller coaster that they're on. And it's just over and over again in the book of Judges. And I know what some of you are thinking, like, roller coasters are cool. <laughs> yes, when you know you can get off. Right? I mean, you, uh, you never get on a roller coaster thinking, I never want to get off of this thing. Like, you have to be able to get off. And, and the book of Judges, is, that's just what it is. And the people don't know when they can get off. And if you read it, 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 it should, it should, I guess part of it, or it can, like, you can get anxious. You could get anxious if you were part of one of those people. Because that's only fun for so long. And so you get to the end of the book, and it, you're, you're, like, wondering, like, why is this happening over and over again? Like, that's the question you should be asking. And the writer answers it in this way. That in those days, Israel had no king. Israel had no king in those days. So all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, the Bible is interesting because it's, it's referring back to itself here. There was an assumption that when Israel was going to move into the promised land, that he'd actually want a king, and he would have a king, and he would get a king. And so in Deuteronomy, which is called the second law, um, what we're told is how this king is supposed to be. So the Israelites, the people of God, are going to move into the promised land, and they're going to want a king like the other nations to, to guide them and direct them and to be with them and, and to protect them and to do all of those things to help them thrive. Uh, and so in the book of Deuteronomy, there's instructions on who this king is supposed to be and how he's supposed to operate as king. And so I'm going to read these to you because I want you to, to hear it. It's in Deuteronomy 17, and Deuteronomy comes before Judges, just in case you're wondering, 17, verses 14 through 20. So here's God giving them instructions about who the king's supposed to be. He says, you are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. And when you take it over and settle there, you may think, we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select a king, or be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up large stables of horses for himself. Or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never to return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself, because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. Whenever he sits on the throne as king, he must copy himself, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way, he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in any of the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations. So let's look at who their king was supposed to be. First, he's supposed to be much different than all the other kings around them. And so instead of becoming like the other nation's kings that are, is primarily seen as a great warrior that's just going to be out conquering, that's going to be accruing status and wealth and women and all the things that go with this, this king was asked to obey the Mosaic law. 
he was asked to obey God. In other words, God was going to be this king's king. And his personal obedience and reliance on God as king was going to be the peace that the coming generations and the people would have. And so this king isn't just described as some great and mighty leader like other kings would be, but he's an example for these people, or he should be an example for these people. Well, you get to Judges, and, and this king, he never exists. And then you even bring along like the, these other judges, the judges that are helping people get back on track with God. At, at best, like these are, these are pseudo-kings, but not only that, they're, they're only like partially committed even to following God and the law. I mean, they're deeply flawed people, which is, which is sometimes comforting for us that God could just use somebody like Samson if you read that. But, but at the end of the day, be, because they're so flawed and they're so troubled and they, they really aren't committed to God in the way that they, sh- they should be, it continues to lead to the people's demise and their struggle, both personal and social. And so what we're told is that because in those days, going back to chapter 21, verse 25, Israel had no king, this is what all the people did because they had no example. They had no one to lead them. All the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. In other words, everyone did what they wanted. Everyone did what they felt was right. And so instead of becoming uniquely God's people, instead of striving to live up to the standard that God had set for them, they're looking around. And they're taking on the other religions of the nations. That, by the way, is why this king had to be an Israelite. It wasn't because God is ethnocentric. It's because God wanted the king to be devoted to him as he called his people to be. And so they're looking around, and, and the Canaanites are, are, are the people that are around them. And basically what they're saying is that, I want to be like them. I want to be like them. If you are somebody who reads your Bible, what you discover in Numbers before they move into the land is that uh, uh, Moses sends out spies into the land. And when they go into the land, the Canaanites are there, and they come back, and they're like, those dudes are really big. They've, they've, got, this, they've got all this wealth. They have these orchards. Like, you won't, you won't believe them. Uh, they're they're going to be, they're, they're like skilled in all of these different things. There's no way that we can move into that, into that land. And basically, what they were telling Moses, like, they're so much more advanced than we are. And what you discover, even if you read like, historically what was going on in that time and the, the people around the Israelites at this point in time, is that the Canaanites were superior than the Israelites in a lot of different ways. They were superior in, with art. They had better literature by this time. Their architecture was better. They were better at trade. Their political philosophy was, was more advanced. And so what you discover is that the Israelites, they're in awe of the Canaanites. And so what they're going to do is they're going to look at the Canaanites and they're going to try to do what they're doing. They see what they're doing and they feel like, well, you know what, that might be better than what God has called us to. And what you discover in the book of Judges is that it doesn't work out well for them. Like they, they get on the same roller coaster that the the Canaanites live on themselves. And this is the message of the book of Judges. And so, a fair question for you all is, what does this have to do with me? 
right? Well, I think a lot of us are doing what is right in our own eyes, and it's harming us. It's harming us. And this, this applies to many of us in and outside of the church. You see, the Israelites, they, they looked at the Canaanites and they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to take on the practices of our contemporaries. And I think the reason that a lot of us struggle, whether it be stress or anxiety, is that we are doing the same. And we aren't necessarily a lot of times looking at other religions, but sometimes we are, and saying we're going to take on those things. But, but we're looking at a, a, a culture that's becoming a little more irreligious, and we're becoming enamored by that. Like we're saying, like, I want, I want that. And so we, we're basically taking on, like, secularism to a certain extent. And so what is that, right? I, I'll just define this a little bit. It's, it's the principle seeking to conduct human affairs based on principles derived solely from the material world without recourse to religion. Uh, Mark Sayers, in his book, says this is a problem really simply uh, for these reasons. He says, any attempt to arrange a world-functioning peaceful place where humans can operate without God, God's law as a secular project. He's, he's describing what a lot of us are doing there, I guess, is a better way to put that. And I think this is a problem because when we try to operate without God, what it does is it makes us anxious. It makes us anxious. Because there's a huge problem with, there's a huge problem with secu- secularism. And here it is. is It doesn't tell you who you are or who you're, who you're to become. It doesn't. Theology does that. Like, r- religion does that. Good philosophy does that. And I know some of you will say, like, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, yeah, I have a relationship with a personal God, with the Holy Spirit, but I also got a degree in, in religion. Like, you, you practice religion. You're at church this morning. Like, that's a religious practice. And we need practices in our lives to help us. Help us soothe our anxiety. To help us get to know who God is. And so what we discover is that the Israelites, they have, they have this word from God. They have a word from God on who they are supposed to come, become and what they are supposed to do. And, and yet what happens is they decide to do, we're just going to do whatever is right in our own eyes. And what they do time after time is they forget about God. And this is what kind of our, our modernity and what is done to us and what we are doing to ourselves, that we are making assumptions that our, our faith is secondary to, to science and political philosophy and our personal desires. And so this is kind of just what I wrote down as I think about this. Many people still say we're religious. We still say that we're devoted to Jesus. But in, in reality, a lot of our devotion and even our religion and, and what we're doing, it's an add-on to basically a secular worldview that we have taken. But we care more about fulfilling our personal desires, and it's making us anxious. We care more about our personal desires than any other purpose in life. Like, that has become our higher purpose. So our purpose is no longer to serve God. It's not to be transformed in the likeness of Christ. It's not to become servants of the greatest and highest good. In fact, the greatest and highest good for us has become fulfilling our greatest and highest good, like within ourselves. And so it's no longer to provide for our families or for communities we become enamored with pop psychology that is telling us to seek personal fulfillment and happiness, which is actually making us less happy and more anxious and more stressed. 
I mean, think about that for a second. Like, you have to be happy all the time. How, like, how awful is that? Like, does it not, might that not make you anxious or stress you out? Or that your kids have to be happy all the time? Right? When you have kids, you'll realize, like, that's an impossible task. It's not even something I want to do. I have no desire to make them happy all the time. Right? This is shifting, I think, because we're, we're seeing what this is leading to. We don't have more inner peace in our pursuit of this. We don't have more meaningful relationships in our pursuit of our self-fulfillment and happiness and doing whatever is right in our own lives. We're not leading more purposeful lives by buying into all of that. I mean, think, like, I can pull out my phone, too, and I can have anything I need right now for basic survival and more in less than two days. And, and that's, that's not fulfilling. And, and so, in other words, like this secular project or secular, it's, it's failing. It's failing. And here's one reason. And the same reason people failed in the book of Judges. Is we have no standards. Right? We have no law. We have lost our external, and we are losing our internal moral compass to guide us and others. And this causes not just like chaos and anxiety just for its own sake, but you are a moral being. Like what you do matters. It, 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 it matters. What you believe matters. And you know that. There's an article that was recently shared uh, to me, and it's going around. It's a really interesting article. Um, it's called How America Got Mean. And the article, it, it laments right now uh, the kind of psychological health of our country. That's kind of how it, it starts and the way that we treat each other. Now, the author is David Brooks, and he, he says the reason for our basically our sickness that we have right now and that a lot of us are experiencing is uh, for one major reason. He says it's lack of moral formation. In other words, like we no longer know what is right and wrong. And we don't want to talk about it. Like, and we don't want to have standards for ourselves or anyone else. And so therefore, like, we, don't, we don't train our kids in this. We don't ask anyone else to do it. And, and we, don't, we don't have anybody standards for anyone else. Any, any, we don't have anything for anybody else to strive to become or to do. And so he says this about it. He says, our society has become in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. In a healthy society, a web of institutions, families, schools, religious groups, community organizations, and workplaces helps form people into the kind of responsible citizens and the sort of people who show up for one another. We live in a society that is terrible at this. In other words, and we're all doing what is right in our own eyes. And we are terrified to tell others that what they're doing isn't good for them. We have no real boundaries in our own lives, and it's causing hurt and chaos not only to us, but the people around us. We do and we say whatever we want, and here's the thing. We know others are going to do the same, and that makes us anxious. We, we, we're becoming the type of people described in Proverbs 25, 28 that says without a, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Like anything can come in, anything can go out at any time. 
Like, that's how our lives are becoming. But the problem with that is, is Judges is trying to remind the reader, don't become like that. Here's a reason that causes anxiety in us, and it's a real just practical reason. It erodes public trust. We can't trust each other. I, I can't trust you if you're, I know you're not going to consider how you treat me. It, it's not going to work. The book of Judges actually ends in a really interesting way. Kind of the last chapter, it ends with Israelites taking advantage of Israelites. And so brother taking advantage of brother. Like neighbor taking advantage of neighbor. The point is, is if you can't trust your brother or your sister or your neighbor, like who can you trust? Who can you trust? And so what's the solution? What's the solution? I honestly think... One of the ways to combat anxiety for ourselves, you know, and to call people to, is this idea that we have a king. We have a king, right? And so what I'm asking you to do is to combat your anxiety by becoming a Christian. Like, and, and not only in name, but in deed. The, the first Christian creed, in other words, Basically, if I were to ask you in the first century, like, what makes you a Christian, the, the, the first answer or the first thing that we believe that, that people would have professed is something extremely simple. Everybody could have remembered. It was the, the sheer fact that Jesus is Lord. In other words, that Jesus is king. And so as Christians, we have a king, and that king is Jesus. And so after the resurrection, people are going around and they are declaring Jesus is king, and they worshiped him as such. And what's incredible about this, I mean, think about the stipulations of Deuteronomy. He was chosen by God. He was an Israelite. He did not conquer people through force. He did not store up wealth for himself. He did not become prideful. He, he, he did not go around uh, tell, uh, elevating himself. He studied the law, and he obeyed the law. Like, Jesus is king. He's the obvious king that we see in Deuteronomy. But here's what we need to consider today, I think, if we're going to lift ourselves out of the problem that we even have, like not knowing who to be, not knowing who to become, not knowing what to do, it's we have to recognize that every king has, dominion, has a dominion of reign and has laws within that dominion. And so as Christians, like we fall under that dominion of reign. Now, I believe that God's dominion is the entire universe, but we also, there also is a dominion of reign that we voluntarily come under when we become a Christian. In other words, that when we become a Christian, we are saying that, that, God, you got me. Just like you have the entire world, just like you have the entire universe, all belongs to you, and so do I, and I, I am under that dominion of reign. Like, I am yours, and because I am yours, and because everything belongs to you, and because you are all-powerful, because you are the one who has risen from the dead, I am safe and secure in you. I belong to you, and I am going to worship you and you only, because I am in your dominion of reign. And so for all of us, too, that are nervous and anxious about our political climate, those people are not your kings. Those people are not to be worshipped as your kings. And I don't care who gets elected, any of those sorts of things. Like, it, those things matter. I'm not telling you to be apolitical. But those things should not dictate how you feel about moving forward in life. When the people of the first century said Jesus was Lord, they were essentially saying Caesar is not. 
That's what got them killed. And they were willing to die for that. Because they, became, they came under Jesus' dominion of reign. Now, it, they are also under his laws and standards. Following Jesus has not been, nor has it ever been, doing what is right in your own eyes. To be a Christian is to commit to follow him and to become like him. And I believe part of our mass anxiety that's often in the church is that we do not know what is right and wrong. We have lost and we are losing our moral compass and even the right to share what is right and wrong because our lives are often a wreck. And can I just say some of the problem with this is that we are developing a higher view of people than we are of God. Now, the law, you need to understand this. The law in the Old Testament was not the problem. And it often gets a bad rap in Christian circles. The problem in the Old Testament is the people's inability to follow the law or their desire to. I mean, you get to Psalm 1. Like, that's the, that's the first Christian, by the way, it's the first Christian worship book. Many Christians just worship from the Psalms in general. It says, blessed is he who meditates on the law day and night. Right? The, the, it, it's lifted up. The problem has been our rejection of it. So we're the problem often in that. We've chased after what is right in our own eyes. And we've rejected a king and his goodness and his claim for us to be a free people. We talk about freedom a lot in Christianity. And when early Christians spoke about freedom, it it wasn't the freedom to do whatever you want. The Bible actually speaks of that as bondage. Bondage of the flesh, the devil, and of sin. Freedom of Christ is much different than that. It's freedom from sin. It's freedom from demonic forces of the, the, the spirit of this age. It's, it's, spiritual, it's freedom from spiritual bondage, condemnation, making up our own divine laws. It's, it is freedom from legalism. It's freedom from death. It's freedom to live by the spirit, delighting in God's law, and what he'd have us to be and who he'd have us to become. And it's loving God, and it's living in communion with God. That's what, that's what the freedom that God talks about is. So I want us to spend just a, a moment here, and I want to conclude uh, by reflecting on what Paul writes to the Galatian church, because I want us to be thinking about this. And there's a, there's a lot here that I don't have time to resolve. Um, but, but I want us to, to see this, because this is, he's talking about Christian freedom here. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Right? The flesh is, is what the writer of Judges calls doing what is right in your own eyes. It's your sin nature. It's contrary to what... God would have you to do and who God would have you to become. But here he says this. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. So the the flesh, like doing what is right in your own eyes, is in contrast to God's Spirit here. In conflict with one another. So that you aren't to do what is right in your own eyes, whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And, and part of what Paul's doing, this is why I don't have time to unpack all of this here, is that he's saying, as Christians, we are different. Than, we're not Jewish, is what he is saying there. And, and so we don't have all, all, all the stipulations there. 
But he goes on to say, and here's what's incredible about verse 19, is I think if he were to write this today, he would actually write this in a different way. Like, I don't think he would say the acts of the flesh are obvious. I I think he might say these aren't obvious to you anymore. But he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, uh, factions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgy. It says, and the like, like the little, and things like these is the little translation. Like, just keep going if you want. Like, you can throw other stuff in there. But he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, like those people who live like this, they, they don't, they're not going to fall under Jesus' kingship and dominion and reign. Things aren't going to go well for them, is what he's saying. But then he goes on. He gives a positive vision of what it looks like to live in the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, against no, such things, there is no law. Now that he's not, and and here's, here's again why. We don't have a ton of time to unpack this, but here's what you need to know. When he says against such things, there is no law. In other words, what he is actually saying is that you are fulfilling the new law when you take on the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit and are loving, joyful, peaceful, and so forth. And by showing here that, that those are the fruit, that's the fruit of following God and living with God and being full of the Spirit of God, what he is actually saying here as well is not that there, there, there isn't a standard, not that there isn't something that we are striving to do, become, follow, even uh, refrain from. But what he is saying here is that when we are living in the spirit and there is no law, that, that we are actually able to follow this now. Because we are spiritual people being guided by the spirit. In other words, when you become a Christian... And when you're being guided by the Spirit and you're in step with the Spirit, you are actually given a new set of eyes. And so what happens when Jesus is your king and you really want to follow him and you really believe that, what Jesus wants for you and who you are to become and the things you are to do, they're not things that you don't want to do. You actually want to do them. So you're given a new set of eyes. You actually begin, when you, when, you be, when you start following and you give Jesus your entire life and your heart and all those sorts of things, your greatest desire can become to please Christ. And that's what he's talking about there. Then he goes on to say in verse 24, those who, desire, or those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So your king has been crucified for you in your behalf so that you might crucify doing what is right in your own eyes. He died for sin, not so that we would sin, but so that we would walk out of sin and to our king. So here's the the response this morning, the call for you. For you to leave here to think about, to respond, maybe as John gets ready to come up here. I want you to think about this. You might be anxious because you have no king. Right? You might be anxious 
in the way that the old preachers used to put it. It's because you're lost. You don't know who you're supposed to become or what you're supposed to do. Right? You have no guidance. I think a lot of us were, were without guidance. And so here's my call to you. Right? If that's you, make Jesus your king. Make Jesus your king and walk by his spirit. You're not going to get it all right. You're, you're, you're going to mess up. And the beautiful thing about Jesus being your king, though, is that he is good and he is gracious. You sin, you fall, you, make, you mess up. He's there. He's not leaving you. He, he, he was crucified to show that he loves you. He died because he knows that you're going to sin. But he also died to call you out of that. Let him lead and direct you. For others of us, maybe you're here today and, and you would say, like, you know, you're, 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 you're in. Like, Jesus is Lord. That, that, is, that is what you would say. But you know there are areas of your life right, that he is not king of. It might be causing you anxiety. Maybe causing you trouble. You feel it, right? Here's your invitation. Crucify that. Crucify it. Give it to God. Give it to God. Your invitation is the same. I invite Jesus. I invite you to follow Jesus in that area of your life. That's how, that's how, it's well, that's how we make it well with our souls be well with our God, well with our King. Would you stand, and I'm going to pray this morning. Father, we, uh, we come to you, and I know uh, we, uh, I think, <laughs> we went kind of deep this morning. I, I think, Father, that uh, this was a, I don't know, maybe a challenging message for a lot of us. But in many ways, as we seek to follow you and, and really rethink about what it means, Father, to be in relationship with you, I, I think a lot of what we had to say this morning and, and see is foundational to our faith. And so I pray that we re- receive it with open hearts and open minds. I pray that if there's anybody in here Father, who's not made your son their king, they would. I pray that they'd commit today to follow you. I pray that for any of us, as we think about different areas of our lives that we haven't given to you, that we would do that today. Help us all to live by the Spirit. to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, to have more self-control. Father, because you are in our life, help us give praise and thanks for that. And I pray that all in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.